Well, hi, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of Radio Free Acton. This is the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. My name is Mark Vandermoss. As usual, it's my great pleasure and honor to be your host here on the podcast at Acton. And we've got a uh, another good edition of Radio Free Acton for you today. If you've been following Radio Free Acton, you'll know that in our previous edition, we spoke with uh, Acton's Director of International Outreach, Todd Heisinger, who uh, himself is a former diplomat and author of a fantastic book on the European Union, which I will plug right now, The New Totalitarian Temptation, Global Governance, and the Crisis of Democracy in Europe. Fantastic book about the European Union, and we talked with Todd last week about the upcoming, at that point, vote in the United Kingdom uh, over whether or not the UK would remain in or depart from the European Union, the vote commonly referred to as the Brexit vote. Well, now, as we're recording this uh, edition of Radio Free Act, and that vote has happened, and in what is uh, something of a surprise, uh, Britain actually did vote by a margin of 52 to 48 to leave the European Union. And I should add... Uh, that I think it was the day prior to the vote last week, uh, I pulled Todd aside and asked him what his prediction was, and he did predict a vote to leave, and he predicted it to happen by that margin. So, round of applause to Todd Heisinger for his accurate prediction. But, of course, with a vote like that, that means there's a lot of uh, knots to untie and tangles to unravel in terms of international relationships in Europe and uh, across the world. And that means that there's going to be a lot to talk about in the coming weeks, months, and probably years as this Brexit process unfolds. So uh, without further ado, I want to get back to uh, talking with Todd Heisiger. He's joined us again in the studios this week, and he's going to share some insights that he's had uh, since the vote happened and uh, tell us a little bit about what this means for Europe, for the United Kingdom, for us here in the United States, and for the world in general. Uh, so without further ado, my interview with Todd Heisinger here on Radio Free Acton. Well, it would be a bit of an understatement to say that last week was an interesting week in world politics. It was uh, an earth-shaking week, I think would be more accurate to say, uh, with the vote of the British population to leave the European Union. We, of course, talked last week on Radio Free Acton about the Brexit vote, at that point upcoming and previewing it a bit with Todd Heisinger, our Director of International Outreach. He's with us again to review the vote. And uh, before we get to Todd, I want to review some of the response, some of the reaction to the Brexit vote, because it is amazing. The media and elite and political class response to this vote to leave the European Union is something I have rarely seen. It's one of those events where uh, it's it's just, uh, I think, fair to say, a media frenzy. Let's start off with the Washington Post. After the vote, um, in an article entitled, in, a, in Stunning Decision, Britain Votes to Leave the EU, the Post, uh, their lead sentence for this article was as follows. British voters have defied the will of their leaders, foreign allies, and much of the political establishment by opting to rupture this country's primary connection to Europe in a stunning result that will radiate economic and political uncertainty across the globe. So a very balanced look at the uh, at the Brexit vote there in the uh, New York, or in the Washington Post. The New York Times uh, yesterday, as we record this, we're recording this on Monday, uh, the twenty seventh. Tom Wyman uh, wrote an opinion column in the Sunday Times entitled "Hell is Other Britons." 
which essentially lays out his desire to see the village that he lives in destroyed and returned to its natural state because the uh, his fellow citizens are such well terrible people uh, in, in in the wake of the Brexit vote that the, the Times this morning, the Monday, June 27th edition of the Times continues this uh, really over-the-top coverage of the of the vote. Uh, the headline on page A1, British politics in chaos as vote result sinks in, sidelining key U.S. ally. Now, this is interesting. Uh, the subheadline on the first article on Brexit is Washington's direct line to continent suddenly frays. And the Times says American officials struggling to reimagine their strategy after Britain's decision to divorce the European Union say the most urgent challenge will be to find a way to replace their most reliable, sympathetic partner in the hallways of European capitals. It will not be easy. Uh, it, it going on, of course, there's a second article about the chaos in the Labour Party, uh, which is a totally different subject in Britain. Going to section B... Uh, on the business day section, we have an article right at the top of the page, Central Bank's Wary of Engaging World Markets After Brexit. Uh, a little bit lower down, we have uh, Phased in the City of London. It's an uncertain new day for finance workers in Britain as Brexit leaves clout behind. So Great Britain has uh, lost all of its clout as a result of the Brexit vote. Uh, moving on to section C, the arts. You would think that we wouldn't have a Brexit article there, but... Right at the top, Brexit vote casts uncertainty on the fate of Britain's art market, uh, which is a, a, indeed an important, uh, an important thing to think about after this momentous vote. The sports section, you'd think we'd be safe, but uh, no, in fact, we are not. Uh, page two this time, though, they, they demoted it to page two, what Brexit may mean for England's game. So the New York Times in every section today covering uh, Brexit. Um, in Britain, uh, we have what I'm sort of referring to as the revolt of the remains. There are a number of politicians and uh, social leaders uh, who are desperately looking for any way to overcome the vote, either through parliamentary means or some other means. Uh, a member of parliament, David Lammy, is a great example of this, who wrote a column in The Guardian called We Need a Second Referendum. Uh, and, and he's quoted as saying, we can stop this madness and bring this nightmare to an end through a vote in parliament. So this can be summed up, I suppose, this whole frenzy is that all of the best sorts of people in Britain and around the world, frankly, are shocked and appalled by the results of this vote. Um, and I think uh, Megan McArdle, writing in, in Bloomberg View, sums some of this up, this attitude, uh, saying that uh, she's quoted as saying, in many ways, members of the global professional class have started to identify more with each other than they have with the fellow residents of their own countries. A lot of my professional colleagues seem to take the Brexit vote personally, and the dominant tone framed this as a blow against the enlightened, quote, us and the beautiful world we are building, struck by a plague of Morlocks who had crawled out of their hellish subterranean world to attack our impending utopia. At, uh, at this point, I am going to uh, bring into the conversation Todd Heisinger, who is our director of international outreach here at the Acton Institute, and of course, author of a fantastic book on the European Union and the problems thereof. It's called The New Totalitarian Temptation, Global Governance and the Crisis of Democracy in Europe, and uh, a fine volume, I think, that, that speaks volumes about why the Brexit vote happened. But Todd, welcome, first of all. And uh, can you uh, tell us a little bit about what you're seeing in this response. Uh, is, the, is this, I, I, I tend to think that this is revealing a great gulf between uh, the elites in not only the UK, not only the EU, but around the world. Uh, the gulf between those elites, those political leaders, and uh, the average voters 
who they claim to represent. Is that is that the case? I think, unfortunately, we're, I'd have to say yes. Um, the 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 kind of exaggeration, the the hyperbole of the response of many of the elites that you were just uh, demonstrating is is really amazing to me. And I guess my first message to all of them would be: calm down. Uh, the world has not ended. Great Britain still exists. Um, Great Britain is still a very, very good friend of the United States. And Great Britain is actually still in the EU because it has to go through long negotiations in order to negotiate the terms of its leaving. And when Britain leaves the EU, unless some sort of mass craziness descends upon the continent, Britain, Britain will still be a very good friend and a very good trading partner of all of the other EU member states. It, it is amazing to see this response. And, and uh, I was reading in the American Interest, uh, theamericaninterest.com, uh, an article that posits that the problem with Brexit is the leaders, not the voters. And they raise an interesting possibility here, an interesting, interesting thought that I want to have you comment on. They say in the, the rulers of the European Union, the United Kingdom, the United States, take your pick are so convinced that they know better than the masses and that they are building a better world that even in defeat, they are bemoaning how wrongly the masses have voted. And that is the looming danger for the future that the Brexit vote foreshadows, that the elites will still not address the concerns of a large proportion of their own citizens. Um, we've talked, I, I think, on a couple of occasions, as we've talked about your book, The New Totalitarian Temptation, as we've talked about Brexit, about the unresponsiveness of the EU to the needs, the, the perceived needs of the voters, of the, of the people that they govern. Is Brexit enough to get these continental leaders, even, even the leaders in, in the UK who are so shocked about this, is this enough to get them to, to step back and say, whoa, we've got to reassess things? That is, that's the question. Um, I mean, the reaction of, of the elites, especially in Europe, does indicate that what I say in my book about uh, they're building a political utopia and about you know normal everyday voters not being allowed to get into the way of this uh, brave new world that they're building, this is all just confirmed by the violence of their reaction to the voters actually having a, a say in the unresponsive, utopian, unrealistic project that is the EU. Um, one comment I do want to make, and that is, you know, I think everyone needs to show a little bit of humility, um, and especially the elites. They need to show a little bit of humility, just a little bit of a, of a consciousness that, you know, they might be wrong and that the people who voted for Brexit, you know, might have a point and might have real concerns. Um, also, you know, we really don't want to gloat in this uh, situation because it's a very complex issue and the vote was close, um, and, you know, there are many Britons who, of goodwill and intelligence who believe they should have stayed in the EU. Um, that said, I think this was a real, a real victory for the idea of self-government around the world. I think the British people um, who voted for Brexit showed tremendous amount of courage. Um, voting for Brexit, voting to take their government back, despite all of the fear-mongering and scare tactics that were used before the vote and that are now being which, intensified yeah, after Yeah, which the frankly vote. are still going on it's, and even stronger. Yeah, it's amazing. So I think Brexit, you know, even I could, I could, I could even see someone who, would, who is against Brexit 
um, applauding the vote in the sense that it is a victory for a bigger issue, in my view, namely the issue of self-government. So what's going to happen in Europe? Will, this was your question, will will uh, other peoples in Europe um, follow this example and try to take back uh, power um, to their own national governments? Well, we'll see. Um, I mean, the EU elites... I thought that they were going to retrench for a little while, be kind of modest, um, say kind of all of the right things, and then after things died down and people weren't looking again, they would then go back to building the European uh, Utopian project. But it seems like they're not even they're not even doing that. So it's it's shaping up to be a real battle against the believers in European Union, most of whom the, are the elites and the peoples of Europe. Um, many. Many, many, and ever more of whom are coming to see this project as having failed and as not representing them. It's it's interesting that you talk about the retrenchment process that you were expecting the the EU leaders to go through because there's there's a variety of of responses that that have or, or, or of, of arguments that have dealt with Brexit. Uh, throughout the campaign in the in, in a variety of ways that people are responding to it now. For instance, Angela Merkel, who uh, more than anyone else in Europe, I kind of see her as the public face of the EU. She just seems to have taken that role. Germany is, of course, a very important member of the EU. Um, Angela Merkel has come out and said, look, the EU needs to stop other countries from, from following Britain out the door. We need to stop that. She also, and it's interesting to me, the language that's used here, um, she also says, this is from the Daily Mail, she's also said to have revealed that international financial markets are concerned that the EU is no longer governable in the wake of Britain's exit vote. Now, it, that is, is sort of a red flag to me because that's a statement we'll hear in the, in the American press generally whenever a left-leaning president attempts some big program or some big policy that fails. The fault for the failure is never with the program itself, for instance, Obamacare. Uh, if Obamacare is failing, it's not because the program itself is faulty or the ideas are faulty from the beginning. It's because the people are just ungovernable. It's interesting to see that language crop up in, in Europe in this situation as well. Uh, I don't know if that's significant, but it just stuck out to me. Yes, you know, it's all connected, I think, too, with uh, with the, the real panic of... Uh, EU elites seeing that their project could very well, ha the, the beginning of the end of their project could very well have happened with the Brexit vote. Um, they're in panic. And so they're both expressing their panic and in a certain sense, I don't know if it's consciously or not, um, spreading panic by kind of claiming radical things like ungovernability and uh, you know, always using the markets kind of and the fall of the markets and the end of trade and, and all of that kind of stuff as, as some sort of specter looming on the horizon if, if, uh, if people don't go along with their project. So there's a lot of panic. And interestingly enough, it's really on the side of the elites. Um, I haven't seen, um, I haven't seen much other than kind of sober, uh, recognition of victory and kind of trying to figure out, okay, what are we going to do next on the side of the Brexiteers? There are a lot of practical consequences that are going to flow from this, this exit. And, and uh, one of the, one of the things that's on the table now, one of the, one of the practical outflows of this vote in Britain is that Scottish independence is now 
uh, right back up in the forefront of the public discussion. Scotland obviously voted pretty heavily in favor of staying in the EU. Uh, their votes were outnumbered, of course, by the rest of Britain. Uh, but Scotland, um, once again, the, the leaders in Scotland are, are proposing that there be another referendum on Scottish independence. Now, uh, it was just a year or so ago, was it not, that Scotland uh, narrowly stayed in the UK? Uh, remind me of the date of that. That was just recently. The exact date, I don't know, but um, it was a few months ago. And um, most polls expected that the Scottish would leave the EU, uh, leave uh, the, the United UK. Kingdom. Yes. But they did not. They, they voted, you know, in a very um, decided vote that they were going to stay uh, in the UK. So now what's happened is that, you know, the four, let's say, people groups within the United Kingdom, the English, the Welsh, the Irish, the Northern Irish, and the Scottish, um, the English and the Welsh voted by majorities to leave the EU. The Irish voted by a majority to stay, and the Scottish voted by a bigger majority, 62%, to stay. So this this definitely will uh, exacerbate, I think, um, the tensions between the Scottish and the English within the UK. But whether it's going to lead to uh, another Scottish referendum to vote referendum to leave the UK and whether they will vote to leave the UK if there is another referendum, that to me is still an open question. I mean, I'm not sure that the Scottish leaders are actually going to call for a referendum until they are certain from overwhelming polls that they will win that referendum. Sure. If they lose a second referendum to leave, then they're not going to be able to call one for a long time. So we'll see what happens. It's interesting because it's almost being treated as if it's a, it's a foregone conclusion that Scotland will now leave, in some circles anyways. Uh, Theodore Dalrymple is, is one of my favorite commentators on European cultural and political matters. Uh, and he wrote in City Journal uh, about potential Scottish independence, that there's now a race between the breakup of the European Union and the United Kingdom itself because Scottish leaders have threatened another referendum on independence. But this breakup, he notes, would be, would be very difficult, especially for Scotland. Uh, and this is one of those things that I think a lot of people haven't thought about. Germany has already said it would welcome Scotland back into the European Union, but... If Scotland thinks it would then be able to escape uh, George Osborne's policy of so-called austerity, which is to say his feeble attempts to balance the budget, Osborne, of course, the chancellor of the exchequer in Britain, it might get a nasty shock when dealing with German finance minister Wolfgang Schauble. And the, then he goes on to mention as well, if Scotland were to sign up to the Schengen Agreement, there would, in, in, there would be a ridiculous, he calls it a ridiculous but real and damaging land border between England and Scotland, which hasn't been a reality for hundreds of years. So there are real practical consequences for Scotland and for the UK leaving the UK as well. Uh, that, that, there, there, it's not, it, it seems to me that that would, be, that would weigh pretty heavily on the minds of voters, too. I think that's right. And, and I think that these real practical consequences that would make things more difficult for Scotland were the reason that uh, in the first referendum, the Scottish voted to stay in the UK. And most of those practical, kind of real, everyday consequences have not changed at all with the Brexit vote. And, and they might actually be, become more significant with the Brexit vote. You would think that that's a possibility as well. Yeah, it would be a very kind of unpredictable situation, let's say, to have um, an independent Scotland in the European Union and a, and a uh, UK 
without Scotland outside of the European Union. As you said, land border would be would be one of the consequences and all kinds of difficulties between Scotland and England that now don't exist. A couple other basic issues that are raised because of this vote now. Uh, one of them is, and a very important one, is access to the European common market for the UK. Um, Wolfgang Schauble, uh, last, in our last podcast, you mentioned the uh, Der Spiegel edition with the Union Jack on the cover that said, please don't go. Uh, in that uh, edition of Der Spiegel, uh, the German finance minister, Wolfgang Schäuble, was interviewed. And he, there were a couple of things where I thought, oh, he's kind of playing – he's almost playing the role of good cop and bad cop uh, at the same time here. On the issue of the common market, the Spiegel asked him, Britain could continue to enjoy the benefits of the single mar- market without being an EU member in the same way that Switzerland and Norway do. And Schäuble's response was, that won't work. It would require the country to abide by the rules of a club from which it currently wants to withdraw. If the majority in Britain opts for Brexit, that would be a decision against the single market. In is in, out is out. One has to respect the sovereignty of the British people. Now, that's clever wording there because, of course, it, in, in the form of a compliment, it seems almost as though it's a veiled threat there that if you leave, you're out. And this is, of course, June 10th, June 11th. Uh, Sam Gregg, our colleague here at the Acton Institute, uh, director of research, was on the Al Cresta show at Cresta in the afternoon on Friday afternoon on Ave Maria Radio. And and he made the point uh, that it it might well be much better for Britain to begin with just to be a member of the European Economic Association, uh, to to step back from the EU itself uh, and to and to simply engage economically with the with the continent while maintaining its sovereignty over its laws and, and, and other things at home. And he also raises the very valid point. When you're talking about the U.K., you're talking about the fifth largest economy in the world, the second largest economy in the, U, in the EU. They're not going to be able to simply shut them out. It, it, it seems that there would be as much harm done or more harm done to the EU than Britain. Britain, uh, the EU needs Britain more than, the Britain, needs e, more than Britain needs the EU, correct? I would say that's absolutely right. And thus, the Brits are going to be negotiating during this uh, negotiation process of leaving the EU, which will probably last about two years. They're going to be negotiating from a position of strength. And I think that they are going to realize that. And I think that the EU negotiators negotiators are also going to realize that. So, uh, you know, one of the main topics, of course, of this uh, negotiation is going to be, okay, what are going to be the economic arrangements between uh, a Great Britain outside the EU and the EU. And again, I, I see absolutely no interest of anyone served by cutting off Great Britain from meaningful trade ties with the European Union. Um, you know, the single market is a huge question because um, if you're in the single market right now, even if you're not an EU member, then you have to abide by all of the regulations that the EU um, places upon the single market. And uh, most of the people who voted for Brexit do not want that, understandably so. But, you know, it's it's unclear how far the mandate of the negotiations go. And I think one thing that's really important to remember about these negotiations is that once Great Britain has invoked uh, Article 50 of the EU treaties, which is the article under which a country announces it is going to leave, then it's no longer just the EU rules. The EU rules are recognized and apply to the European Union, but they don't have to be recognized and apply to 
Great Britain. No one has ever left the EU yet. Therefore, there's no precedent. Therefore, there's absolutely no reason right now, it seems to me, to say if Britain wants this or that economic relationship with the EU, Britain will have to do this or that. These are the types of things that are going to be negotiated. And that's an interesting – another interesting point is that it's Britain that is the first country attempting to leave the EU, not, say, Greece, not, say, Portugal or some smaller uh, southern European country or, or a less economically powerful country. It's Britain, the second largest economy in the EU. And that, I, I would think, has the uh, the possibility of setting some better precedents for nations that are interested in leaving – uh, because Britain has leverage that other nations might not. I think that's right. And I think another important thing that's indicated by the fact that it, that it's Britain that is leaving the EU and not Greece, which uh, you know had many reasons, according to many, many Greeks, to leave the EU for a long time, um, shows that Great Britain um, is expressing its national sovereignty, its, uh, its attachment to self-government. Um, its belief in accountable democracy by leaving the EU. They don't have gripes with the EU that are um, as economically serious, let's say, as Greece. Um, with, the, with the Brits, it's largely a matter of principle um, asserted by a people who understand democracy very, very well over centuries of experience. One of the things that I noticed uh, about the potential moves by other countries to leave, the, the list that I have of nations that are now uh, hearing rumblings about leaving the EU, uh, let me see, include uh, France, Holland, Italy, Austria, Finland, Hungary, Portugal, and Slovakia. All are having discussions now in their, in their public and in their media about the potential of having similar referendums. The, the, an interesting thing in the Wall Street Journal that I read, Portugal – uh, in Portugal, this this really caught my eye. A key ally to Portugal's socialist government said the country should consider holding a referendum on the European Union membership if the EU decides to impose sanctions over last year's missed budget target. And that that strikes me as something. Uh, it, it, there may there may be a little bit of a you know with with Britain leaving and with the threat of nations leaving being real, um, there may be a little bit of that sort of. Uh, economic blackmail that could go on is that it, it, I, I would imagine that that sort of a of a headline would raise some eyebrows in Brussels at this point. Yes, uh, on the one hand, economic blackmail is a, is a very good and very accurate way to put it. On the other hand, you could say um, there may well be uh, instances of taking national sovereignty back in the economic realm. Um, you know, the eurozone countries have given up significant national sovereignty, significant decision-making power over their economies. Um, and, uh, and you know, one of those is has to do with budget deficits and so forth. And, uh, you know, countries have long been uh, chafing at that. And uh, I think that probably will get worse. Well, the, another interesting point, and the, the final point that I want to bring up here is that uh, Britain, by leaving the EU – also will take with it a substantial part of the EU budget. Uh, and the question now is an open question. Who is going to kick in the uh, roughly 3 billion euros a year that Britain puts into that EU budget? And uh, I, I don't think it's going to be Greece. I don't think it's going to be Portugal. Uh, the Germans seem to be a likely candidate to be on the hook for that additional money. And they uh, there, there's already a little bit of... Uh, a little bit of discontent in Germany, as I understand it, with paying other people's bills. So 
it, it, it's going to be very interesting going forward to see how this shakes out. Do you have anything that you want to add to this that, that we've missed here? Is there anything that, that you, uh, from your perspective, having worked as a diplomat in Europe, as the author of, of a great book on Europe, what can you say going forward? What are we, what are we expecting to see? Well, to, uh, one point first about what you said about uh, the, um, the EU losing Britain's contribution, which you are right, is very, very significant, and the Germans perhaps having to foot that bill. Um, this is a really interesting, this will be a really interesting thing to observe in Germany. The Germans have always been the uh, large, powerful member state that is most interested in European Union because the Germans um, are burdened by their past. They want to overcome their past, and they want to be good Europeans, and they've mistaken that, in my view, um, with being members of the EU and being good members of the EU. But now, you know, since the whole Greek, Greek fiasco, which the Germans paid for mostly and are still paying for, there's a real conflict in a lot of minds of a lot of Germans, namely, um, okay, I believe in Europe, I want to be a good European, um, you know, the EU is good for Europe, etc., but it's really directly affecting my pocketbook and affecting the economic future of my country. Um, and so, you know, it'll be very interesting to see whether there's some point at which there's a tipping point in Germany where they say, okay, we want to be good Europeans, but this is ridiculous. Um, so that could really happen. And I think that's a really, really important thing to, to observe. Um, what's going to happen in terms of the future of the EU, I think, is, is anybody's guess. I don't think anyone can realistically tell at this point. But there is a real possibility that after a, after a good, hard battle that we already see, that uh, you know Brexit um, might have been kind of the the last straw after the eurozone crisis, the migrant crisis, um, the danger of terrorism in a Europe of open borders, and now Brexit, where they actually voted to leave, that that could mean that. You know, the EU is either going to unravel or that the EU will actually reform um, and become what it, in my view, always should have been. And that is a forum for cooperation between sovereign member states. A more Thatcherite vision for exactly, the EU. Exactly, a Thatcherite vision for the EU. Um, so we'll see. And then one more short comment, and that is, you know, when people say um, that Britain has now done away with its main connection to Europe and so forth and so on. Um, well, my response to that is NATO. Britain is still in NATO. NATO has been the most effective, the most important, um, and the central um, alliance within Europe and with the United States and Canada um, that has, has existed post-war. And Britain is still in NATO, along with most of the other members of the European Union. So we still have a very, very strong alliance among Western European and Central European nations, NATO, which includes the United States and Canada. Todd Heisinger is uh, our Director of International Outreach here at the Acton Institute. He is the author of a fantastic book, The New Totalitarian Temptation, Global Governance and the Crisis of Democracy in Europe. If you want to know a lot of the reasons behind the Brexit vote, why it happened the way it did, you will not find a better resource to start with than this book. It's available on the Acton Bookshop. 
on Amazon.com, The New Totalitarian Temptation. Fantastic book. Todd, thank you for being here with us. And I am sure we'll have you back as this Brexit process continues. Thank you, Mark. And so another podcast rolls to its conclusion. Thanks once again to Todd Heisinger, our Director of International Outreach here at the Acton Institute. He is uh, not only a fine gentleman, but has proven himself to be a great author as well. He is author of The New Totalitarian Temptation, Global Governance, and the Crisis of Democracy in Europe. We've talked about that book a number of times on the podcast. And uh, I think uh, you would do well to pick it up, uh, read it, and gain some insights on why this Brexit vote happened in the first place and ultimately why it was successful. There's a lot of uh, information on the European Union and uh, its operations in there that will shed some light on that, I think. So uh, you can pick that up at our bookshop here on Acton.org. You can also uh, check out Amazon.com, other online booksellers, or even hopefully your local brick-and-mortar bookseller will have it as well. And uh, great book. Can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, in the meantime, I want to thank you for joining us as well. If you know of anyone else who uh, should listen to Acton podcasts or could use some information from an Acton perspective, send them our way. Send them the links to blog.acton.org. That's the home of the Acton Power blog, uh, where we post daily news information and commentary from an Acton perspective. And also you can uh, send them over to acton.org itself uh, for information about the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. Thanks once again for joining us today. We will see you on future editions of Radio Free Acton. That's all for now. Have a good day, folks. <laughs>